But let me introduce our uh, speaker uh, now, Carlos Del Rio. Carlos, a professor of medicine at Emory University. Um, I've mentioned uh, him already, uh, but he is going to take us through some of what he has been on CNN endlessly and other networks that I don't probably see as much uh, talking about the relationship with COVID and HIV. Carlos. Thank you, Paul, and a pleasure to be here today. So, so for, I think for those of us doing HIV, obviously, when COVID appeared, we initially were very concerned about the implications, what this was going to do to our patients, what the, the impact was going to be. So there's been now a lot of studies, and I think the, the air is becoming a little more clear. There's still some confusion in some areas that, that still need to be investigated, but I'll try to walk you for what we know uh, at this point. <clears throat> Uh, so I'll describe the characteristics and impact of COVID um, on persons with HIV. Uh, uh, you know, the monitor of persons with HIV for COVID infection and describe the importance of COVID vaccination. So what were the, what are the reasons, the potential reasons why persons with HIV may have a worse uh, COVID-19 outcomes? And, you know, the first one is, you know, clearly immune deficiency and immune dysregulation. Uh, we know that patients with immune deficiency, persons that have organ transplant recipients, are at increased risk of severe COVID. Uh, we, we, there's evidence of prolonged uh, SARS-CoV-2 replication in patients with immune deficiency. Uh, patients with, with low CD4 counts may be at risk of more severe disease. We see this, for example, in influenza. And residual inflammation even in patients with HIV, even in ART, uh, and, and especially in those with low CD4 count, may actually uh, in, in further compound this. There's also the issue of comorbidities. Our patients have a have rate of comorbidities, such as diabetes, obesity, hypertension, that have been associated with severe uh, COVID. And then there's uh, social determinants of health, which is, you know, patients with HIV are more likely to be racial and ethnic minorities or poor, and they have other risk factors for, for, for COVID infection and, and, and severe COVID outcomes. So I'll try to walk this through as it was a question and answer session. And the first question is, is are people with HIV at higher risk of SARS-CoV-2 infection? And even though some studies suggest that persons with HIV are more likely to test positive for SARS-CoV-2 infection. Uh, for example, there's a Max Wise cohort in which they looked at and they saw that patients with HIV were more likely to test positive for SARS-CoV-2 than, than seronegative controls. But when you look at the data, it also is because those patients were tested more frequently. So you may be picking more infections simply because you're testing them more frequently. Uh, and in fact, the data from the reprieve study, I think, is worth looking at. And when they looked at, at reprieve study participants, uh, they found that SARS-CoV-2 infection, asymptomatic infection, was extremely common with people with HIV. In fact, 60% of infections detected through antibody testing were totally asymptomatic. So this, this shows that these patients are getting infected, but they're not more likely to get infected, at least looking at these two studies. <clears throat> uh, and then there's, you know, there's this, this study worth looking at from Park in which they looked at different cohorts. There are six cohorts across the United States. And they looked at uh, uh, persons with HIV and persons without HIV in, in all these cohorts. And in all these cohorts, you can see basically superimposition of the lines. There's an over, you know, over the same period of time, there's no evidence of increased uh, 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 risk of infection, high rates of infection. So to the first question, the answer is no, there's no evidence of, 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 uh, of higher risk of infection. Now, are they are higher risk of severe COVID? And again, when you look at different studies, uh, 
you know, you have to recapitulate for non-HIV specific risk factors, hypertension, diabetes, age, uh, BMI. And in fact, the one that, that comes to mind is, is, is the AICVD score. The risk score, you know, really is one of the ones that, it, that looks like it's, it's clearly significant in those studies as well as, as some of the others. But, but it's age really the big driver. And, and you can also see, for example, a Fitbit, uh, a Fitbit score of, of four or more is also another one uh, driving uh, disease. So I'm going to try to walk you through this. So I think that this is very complicated because you have exposure to the virus, susceptibility to infection, severity of symptoms, access to care, and then decision to be tested. And that's what you get identified. And you really need to think about the COVID, you know, behaviors of individuals. You need to think about, about age. You need to think about race, ethnicity. You need to think of underlying diseases. But at the end of the day, when you look at all the studies, it is really unmeasured factors and experiences is where people work, the household composition, the housing, the socioeconomic conditions, you know, other factors that really are driving a lot of the severe disease. And that's the part that makes it somehow very hard to really analyze this. So let's look, for example, as this one study of COVID, you know, severity of disease looked at by CD4 and viral load. And across cohorts from early in the pandemic to the present, there's clearly a trend towards severe disease with low CD4 outcome, uh, counts. And in some cohorts, there's a CD4 count less than 350, and others is 200, but it's really analysis dependent. And yes, there's, there's concerns of confounding by the date of test, uh, by the impact of uh, CD4 count that, you know, of, of, of SARS-CoV-2 infection, uh, which causes by self-lymphopenia. Uh, but for most large non-HIV-specific data sets, uh, you don't really have a lot of data on HIV treatment. And, uh, and there, you know, most people in those, these cohorts aren't antiretroviral therapy. If you look at probably the best data to look at is the Scenics data. And in the Scenics cohort data, history of a CD4 count less than 200 has about a 1.67 risk uh, and, uh, of, of, of severe disease. And a, and a current CD4 count of less than 350 has about 2.68% higher risk for hospitalization. So low CD4, CD8 ratio also increases the risk. So yes, patients with HIV have a, a higher risk of severe disease and hospitalization, and it's very much CD4 dependent in, in addition to the underlying conditions that we talked about. Okay, lost my screen. I heard this happens all the time. Um, so, um, you know, again, you look at the, the people with HIV, higher incidence of clinically detected SARS-CoV-2 infection because we talked about asymptomatic disease being more common. Again, the Scenics data uh, and a couple of other cohorts data suggest that the, the incidence of hospitalization is higher. And, uh, and even in those that, have, uh, that, that are antiretroviral therapy. But when you look at... <clears throat> And when you adjust this for, you know, are there uh, Black or Latinx patients with HIV, they're more likely to test, and therefore they're more likely to have severe, uh, to be in the hospital. Now, how about mortality? Do you have a higher mortality? So there are a couple of analysis out there, and this is one that I thought it was worth looking at. And the first thing that strikes you when you look at, when you look at this analysis, and I'll tell you the caveats of this analysis, when you look at it, you see different countries, and when you get to the U.S., you essentially look at three studies, all of them done in New York City. So this was New York City early in the, pand- in, in the pandemic. This is when, you know, a lot of, of what was going on 
you know, you guys live through this in New York City. So I'm not sure I would look at this data in New York and say, oh, clearly there's a higher risk of mortality in people with HIV. You can look at one of the studies that shows no. You look at one of the other studies that shows a much by higher risk. And, and really, you end up saying, well, we don't know really what when you look at the pool in mortality, uh, you know, you really have no idea what, what exactly what direction is going. Uh, so so you then did tend to look at, at other places and say, is there a higher risk? And I think when you put all the studies together, when you put different studies from across the, the, the world, including from uh, from Africa and from the UK and other places, you start realizing that, yes, there appears to be a higher uh sort of risk of, 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 of mortality in people with HIV compared to people without HIV. So in conclusion, are people with HIV at higher risk of dying from COVID-19? And I think you can say that, yes, several studies have shown that persons with HIV have a high, increased risk of dying from COVID-19. However, the studies have very different conclusions about how, how great that risk is. Some say it's a lot of risk. Some say it's, it's a lower risk. And I think two men analysis conclude the risk of death maybe between 78 to 90, 95%. There's a WHO study that says that persons with HIV have a 30% higher risk of dying after admission to the hospital for COVID-19 than people without HIV. And again, uh, when you look at all the data, uh, it's not just in people with HIV, it's having diabetes, high blood pressure, and particularly being male and over the age of 75 that are associated with high risk of, of, of mortality. And again, many of those are associated with high risk of mortality, whether you have HIV or not, and that's what the problem is. <clears throat> so let's move on to prevention. Uh, so how, you know, were people with HIV included in the phase three vaccine studies and the pivotal studies? Well, the Pfizer vaccine study enrolled 196 people with HIV, but they were not included in the published analysis of the data which was led to the approval by regulators in both the U.S. and the U.K. So even though they included people with HIV, they, they excluded them from the analysis and they excluded them from presentation to the FDA. The Moderna study enrolled 176 people with HIV. One person was in the placebo arm and none who received the vaccine developed COVID. There were no unusual uh, concerns uh, about safety in, in reporting people with HIV. Now, the, the, the Oxford AstraZeneca study recruited 160 people with HIV in the U.K. and South Africa. But again, they were not included in the primary data set that was published in The Lancet. And then the biggest study, including people with HIV, is the J&J study. The J&J study recruited 1,218 people with HIV, or 2.8% of their participants. And there were two cases of COVID in people with HIV receiving the vaccine and four in people with HIV receiving placebo. So that's about the data we have. But when you try to find a publication, it's very hard because all this data are not there in the published studies. What happens to people with HIV if you give them vaccine? Well, <clears throat> first in the studies, it's a small study from Miami in which it was presented at Croy uh, last, uh, last year. And, uh, and outpatients with mild to moderate COVID, you know, 17 with HIV, 19 without HIV, you can see, uh, you, you can see, uh, you know, what the characteristics of the patients, they were all in antiretroviral therapy. And again, they had no differences in their antibody responses to RBD, uh, depending on HIV status. So they seem to respond just as well to you know, developing antibodies after infection. Uh, <clears throat> how effective are the mRNA vaccines in people with HIV? Well, you know, this is, uh, this is a study looking at, at receiving the Pfizer vaccine. And, uh, and you do see lower neutralizing response uh, trends, uh, especially among those with low CD4 counts. So if you look at low CD4 counts, both in the, in the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, 
you tend to see a lower uh, a, a lower uh, lower uh, antibody neutralizing antibody response within those with low CD4 count. And uh, and we'll talk about the study of breakthrough infections, but there seems to be a higher risk of breakthrough infections in those uh, that have HIV. <clears throat> and this is, in fact, the study of, of breakthrough infections. So if you haven't seen the study, I recommend you look at it. It's a, it's a beautifully done study. This is a study, basically, you can see you can see the year of 2021. You can see different months. So you can see when it was a Delta wave and when it was an Omicron wave. And in each one of those uh, points, you can see in... in uh, um, you can see people with HIV in, in one color and in uh, green and people without HIV in the orange. And you can see regardless of where you are, you find, you know, higher, you know, find, find a higher number of breakthrough infections in people with HIV than without HIV. And in fact, when you look at the cumulative, cumulative incidence of breakthrough infections in blue here, people with HIV, you can see that there is a difference between those two curves. But that difference is in large part driven by the CD4 count. And people with low CD4 counts have a much higher rate of breakthrough infections than those that have, uh, <clears throat> that have higher CD4 counts. But even when you go to CD4 counts greater than 500, the rate of breakthrough infections is higher than people with IHIV. So at the end of the day, yes, you will see more breakthrough infections in, in persons with HIV. Uh, so what, what is the summary of this? Well, I think that you can say COVID vaccination is recommended for all persons with HIV. There appears to be no safety concerns for people with HIV. Those that have a CD4 count less than 500 probably have a, a, a weaker antibody response after vaccination. And, uh, and when you look at vaccine efficacy, uh, you get about a 72% in people with HIV with CD4 counts of greater than 450, but only about 58% with lower CD4 counts. <clears throat> okay, how about long COVID in people with HIV? <clears throat> So there's one study, the study from Padua, in which they looked at persons with HIV, all unvaccinated on antiretroviral therapy, and all biologically suppressed. And they had uh, 123 out of 1,800 persons with HIV who had had COVID. You can see they were, you know, 51 year, at, at age of 51, uh, 70, almost 80% were males. They had a good CD4 count of 560. Uh, 35% had asymptomatic COVID, 48% mild COVID. 17% moderate, severe, and 4% died. Among 75 persons who survived COVID-19, 26% reported PACs, a median of follow-up of six months. And asthenia, shortness of breath, and headaches were the most common symptoms. And the only thing that predicted uh, the, 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 severe, the, the uh, PACs was the severity of COVID. So more severe COVID, more likely to get uh, PACs. There is this one study. It's a, it's a study from uh, uh, Steve Deeks from UCSF, and it's available in preprint right now, and suggests that HIV infection is strongly associated with PACs. They find a, a, a fourfold greater risk of getting PACs if you have HIV. And when this model adjusts for HIV status, uh, a higher PD-1 expression on, on total non-naive T cells uh, is independently predictive of PACs. And some of the inflammatory markers that they measured are also associated with increased risk of PACs, including uh, IL-6, TNF-alpha, and IPT-10. <clears throat> so how about uh, uh, PrEP for people with HIV? Well, you know, tixalivimab, uh, whatever, you know, this uh, Evusheld, it's a lot easier to say the commercial name, even though we're not supposed to, uh, is a... Uh, 
is included in the guidelines, and the, F the FDA has an EUA criteria to use it. And in fact, you can see here advanced or untreated HIV infections, people with HIV and CD4 count less than 200, history of AIDS-defining illness, without immune reconstitution or clinical manifestation of symptomatic HIV, are candidates to getting uh, every shelf of pre-exposure prophylaxis. So in our clinic, we have been using this drug, and, and it has been tolerated well and has been uh, useful. How about the impact of COVID-19 on the HIV uh, pandemic? Well, as far as incidents, uh, models of service disruptions versus behavioral change, no change. So in Baltimore, there's one model that shows 25% reduction in partners without change in services. Uh, but there is decrease in new diagnosis by about 12% over the year. And in fact, when you look at the CDC statistics, and CDC is already saying this aloud, is you really can't count the last two years because there's so much less testing that, you know, you're going to see significant reductions in new HIV diagnosis countrywide that not necessarily mean that we've, we're controlling the HIV epidemic. We're simply not measuring the HIV epidemic. And, uh, and there were significant care interruptions, and, uh, and, they, uh, and this probably could result in increased number of cases and deaths. And, uh, and people think, well, if you decrease the number of part new partnerships, plus a change in care, maybe you're going to have a stable incidence. It's going to be sort of a plus minus kind of phenomena. And, uh, uh, and I think what the, the lesson out of this is that as we were scaling up COVID testing, we should, should have also scaled up HIV testing. And in fact, there's a nice study from, uh, from Chicago in which persons that were coming in to the ER with what they thought was COVID, uh, I think in that study, seven or 10 of those patients actually had acute HIV. So we need not to, I, mean, I think many people are getting anchored on COVID. You know, somebody came with fever, they had to have COVID. But if they look for something else, they found other diseases such as acute HIV. I recommend that you look at this paper from uh, HIVMA. Uh, this paper sort of talks about the innovations in care that happened during the pandemic. You know, all of you uh, were part of this. Increased telemedicine access, uh, longer refills. Uh, mail delivery, you know, flexibility in administering the Ryan White uh, funding, uh, funding support for unstably housed individuals. And much of these innovations were temporary. And I think one of the things that we need to really look at is how can we, if those innovations that work, how can we make them non-temporary? How can we actually change the way we provide care as a result of the pandemic? And I think that's something that many of us are trying to really hard to advocate that it happens because some of the things were actually good and why should we stop them just because, you know, the, the public health emergency ends or whatever. <clears throat> uh, so immunosuppression and the emergence of variants is something that everybody's very concerned about. Uh, the beta variant and the Omicron variant likely arose in South Africa, both in Botswana and in South Africa, among people with prolonged infection due to immunosuppression, likely persons with HIV who got infected and remained uh, uh, viremic for prolonged periods of time. And we know that the largest population of immunosuppressed individuals are people living with HIV in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, 50% of the, you know, 37.7 million persons with HIV are optimally treated, and 8 million persons with HIV in South Africa are not receiving antiretroviral therapy, and even more now since because of COVID-19 interruptions. And I think uh, this is one of the many reasons why global vaccine equity really needs to be important. We really need to ensure that not only people with HIV have access to antiretroviral therapy, but we need to scale up vaccination because this is really going to lead to more emergence of, of variants and something that we need to be, you know, 
if you're concerned about variants in the U.S., you ought to be concerned about the global COVID epidemic. So I think in conclusion, you know, people with HIV appear to have a slight increased risk of dying from COVID, and a low CD4 count uh, increases the risk of serious disease. People with HIV uh, who have underlying conditions such as obesity, poorly controlled diabetes, chronic kidney disease, and high blood pressure appear to be at even higher risk. And like in anything else, the most important risk factor for death from COVID-19 are age, being an organ transplant recipient, or having a hematological malignancy. So when you look at the data for people with HIV, age continues to be a major driver of, of, of severe disease. The NIH has recommended uh, that people with HIV should prior, be prioritized and be one of the groups that is at, at high risk of, of, of failure from vaccination. And therefore, not only should they be uh, offered vaccine, but they are among the individuals who are, you know, who are offered a four-dose, uh, are considered early on, were considered part of those individuals who should receive a four-dose irrespective of their age. And, and remind individuals that unvaccinated persons with HIV are four times more likely than HIV-negative individuals to experience non-COVID. And again, something that we need to all keep in mind, because I don't know in your clinics, but in my clinic, we still have, despite having access to vaccine, we still have a, a number of, of people with HIV who have not been vaccinated. And uh, I mean, one of my colleagues the other day was telling me that he had a patient come to the clinic who was demanding to get the, the monkeypox vaccine, but still wanted to, did not want to get the, the COVID-19 vaccine. And, uh, and I think we need to really continue to advocate and to, to really push COVID vaccination in our patients. And we have a major role to play in, in vaccinating our patients and, uh, and hopefully preventing them from getting COVID. And if they get COVID, from preventing, getting them severe disease and preventing them from getting long COVID. And I just want to acknowledge uh, Rachel uh, Bender-Ignacio. She is an investigator at, at University of Washington. And she's actually going to participate in an IAS USA a webinar that is all dedicated to COVID on July 20th. And she's going to be giving a similar talk. So she and I try to coordinate so we wouldn't be given very different messages. And with that, I'll end and happy to answer any questions. All right. So we don't have any questions yet, but I'll... I'll um, start, but um, you've sort of answered it, to, to find out what, what's been your experience um, convincing your patients with HIV to, to get vaccinated so, all you know, the way it's, through, it's, including boosters. So, you know, it's interesting. In our, in our, in our clinic, which is a fairly large uh, Ryan White funded clinic, uh, persons wanted their vaccines there. They didn't want to go somewhere else to get vaccinated. That's where they got their care. And that's where, so we, we set up vaccination there. And I think we did a fairly good job reaching, I think we have, you know, in the high uh, 80s, 90%. So who are vaccinated uh, as lower as far as boosting is concerned and much lower by, by fourth dose. But there is still a, a group of patients who, who do not want to get vaccinated. And the reasons are no different than what, you know, we've heard in, in, in other populations is, is is distrust is is misinformation a lot of misinformation circulates uh certainly when you know a a uh can't even remember her name but you know the uh the artist who said my 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 cousin or my you know a relative had had the sicker atrophy because of the vaccine 
that dropped the number of people who got vaccinated. A lot of concerns about pregnancy related to vaccine that we hear and fertility about, you know, in, in persons that, they, that we see in our clinic. That, so you, still, you just have to, to try to answer questions and try to continue making the point that this is important. I think for a lot of patients, it just is not necessarily that they're, they're anti-vaxxers, so they don't want to get vaccinated. It's just going to take a while to get them to where they need to be. I think, you know, part of what has happened also, the message has been very muddled and very confused, right? And people nowadays, what you hear the most with number of people getting infected, people come in and said, well, you see, I didn't need to get vaccinated anyway because we're still going to get infected and try to explain this other issues, the issues of severe disease, the issues of mortality, the issues of long COVID. I, I recently had somebody who actually, after talking about long COVID, uh, really, you know, agreed to get vaccinated. Okay. So what evidence do we have of the effectiveness of monoclonal antibody and antiviral treatments in the management of outpatient COVID infection in people with HIV? You know, so monoclonal antibodies, uh, as you know, because of the way the virus has evolved, monoclonal antibodies sort of come and then disappear very rapidly, right? We had, I would say that, you know, if, if we hadn't had the variations we had, um, I, I was a... I mean, I love the Regeneron monoclonal. It was fantastic. You know, you can give it IM, you can give it sub-Q. It was easy to administer. You can give it, it helped for treatment, it helped for prevention. But we've lost a lot of monoclonal antibodies. And right now we really only have deptolivimab as, 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 as treatment option. And then we have Evushel as potential prophylaxis. And I don't think if you look at the data nationwide, we're just not using enough monoclonal antibodies. And a lot of it has to do with logistics. A lot of it has to do with personnel. And in, in our clinic, we set up an infusion uh, area for the clinic, and, and we've been doing some, but not as much as I would have liked us to, to do. Uh, there is, if, uh, when I looked at the at the literature, trying to re- review the literature for this talk, I really could not find any studies specifically looking at the monoclonal antibodies in people with HIV, as far as efficacy is concerned. And do you think there are any theoretical reasons to think there's no, a think differential I, response? I think they should work uh, they should work just as well as and, and the people without HIV. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we actually don't have any more questions. Okay. Anything else that you want to share with us? No, I think, you know, the, uh, we need to, I mean, I remind everybody that this pandemic is not over. And I think we need to continue reminding our patients that because somehow the message out there is that this is over, yet everybody's getting infected. And, and I think people with HIV continue to have uh, I mean, they're, they're immunosuppressed individuals and they have higher risk of complications and death and hospitalizations. And, and, you know, as we talk to our patients, we need to remind this. Yeah, I, I think that we've seen people taking care of other people who are immune compromised and trying to protect them, but haven't seen that happening as well with the population of people with HIV. So that was great. Okay. Thank you. Thank and you. what, what we're um, going to do now is uh, there was a break scheduled, but we think that we'd like to just turn to to the panel and I'll invite Dr. Freeland up to introduce the panelists. And if anybody needs a quick cup of coffee or a bio break, just sneak out and come right, come right back. So I invite our panelists to come on up.